Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing, including all of our other podcasts, over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And now would be a good time to start planning a trip here to experience our wide open spaces and do some running or hiking or biking on our vast network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Okay, our guest today is Matt Hart, who is the author of the book, Win at All Costs, Inside Nike Running and Its Culture of Deception. Now, this is an important book that I think everybody interested in competitive athletics should read. It is also a remarkable piece of investigative journalism. And on top of that, it is very well written. Now, if you are a listener of our Blister podcast, you probably heard me mentioning this book when Cody Townsend and I were talking about what we were currently reading. And then it turns out that Matt is a fan of Blister and a listener of Off the Couch. And so we quickly got connected after my conversation with Cody. I told him that I wanted to talk immediately about his book. And so two days ago, I headed up to Boulder, Colorado, where Matt lives, to sit down with Matt to record this conversation. But then we ended up talking for seven hours about his book and a whole lot of related topics, and we never hit the record button. And then it was after 11 p.m. at night, and so we called it a night, and then I met up with Matt yesterday to actually hit the record button on a conversation, and that is what you are going to be hearing here. And let me just say, having now spent a good number of hours with Matt, he really is an impressive guy and a terrific writer who has been published in, among other places, The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Atlantic. And this first book of his is really something else. So in this conversation that you are going to hear, Matt and I talked about how he got interested in and involved with this particular story about Nike and the Oregon Project, and why I kept telling Matt how much I actually hated this book. Well, I also love the book. You'll hear what I mean. And then we talk about a whole number of topics, including the question of whether or not we should just make all performance-enhancing drugs legal in all sports, who is most to blame for PED use in sports? Is it the athletic brands themselves? Is it these overzealous coaches? Or is it the athletes? We also talk about how Matt went about fact-checking a massive story like this, what Nike's response to this book has been, and more. This is a terrific conversation that raises a whole lot of important topics, and so for those reasons, after you listen to this conversation, I really hope that you all do read Matt's book. But for now, let's go ahead and talk to the author himself about all of the above. Here we go. Well, I am sitting here with Matt Hart. Matt, uh, this is a real pleasure. I love your book. And as I've told you, I hate your book. Right. You mostly said you hate my book. And we'll get into that a bit, but... I 
kind of hate your book, but it is an exceptional book. And so I'm really happy to have the opportunity to sit down with you and, and talk about, well, you and it and all of these sort of surrounding things. So yeah, so first of all, this is a pleasure and welcome to our little podcast. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me. First question, you open your book by talking about the fact that you were sent, you were sent this document with the title TikTok, TikTok. And I think a good way to begin is why was this document sent to you in particular? So let's use that as a lead in to who you are, your background, that type of thing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I think the easiest way to answer that is to, so I'm a journalist. I'm a freelance journalist. I write for various magazines. Um, and I have had the journalistic curiosity and interest in performance enhancing drugs and for years. And I have written about it intermittently and talk about it incessantly, if you were to ask my wife. And so I think because I'm someone who's interested in writing about it and have in the past, that uh, that put me in a situation where I might be someone who could do something with the document. And I think that's why it, it landed in my hand. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you have written on the subject of performance enhancing drugs in general or Nike in particular, because this dates back a few years. And I want to go through that and then talk a bit about your own sort of running background. I, I started writing a coaching column for Trail Runner magazine years ago. That's sort of how I got my foot in the game. But, you know, I'm somewhat obsessed with narrative nonfiction and I was reading it with an eye towards writing it someday, of course. Uh, and so as I was cutting my teeth, you know, the Lance Armstrong thing was happening and I was interested and you know, not necessarily reporting, but certainly talking to people who are involved in the sport. And then as I had more opportunities, I just started to pitch stories about doping or cultures of do the culture of doping or particular drugs. And so, you know, eventually, you know, I wrote a, a story about a, an Italian athlete, mountain runner who got caught doping. And I wrote a story for the Atlantic about Floyd Landis and Lance Armstrong's $100 million lawsuit. And then, you know, I, of course, I'd written for the New York Times a couple of times about doping. And so, yeah, I mean, it just sort of grew out of my own interest. Uh, you know, as an athlete, I was keenly aware, you know, I, you couldn't be after the Armstrong books and the Armstrong news. And everyone was worried at the time I was an ultra runner. And, you know, everyone was worried if it was going to spill into our sport and what were people doing and why was this person so fast. And so, you know, as an endurance athlete, it's sort of like omnipresent. It's just since Lance Armstrong's era, I think it's just you know, a question that everyone has and a topic a, a lot of people talk about, especially this like gray area drugs and prescription drugs and what's okay to use and what's not. And so, yeah, eventually I, I had an opportunity to write a few stories about this. And, you know, I had a perspective as an athlete, but as a coach, which I, in a former life had been, had been both. And those, you know, really they're, they come in so handy. I mean, I had had a year, probably a couple of years where I cratered my physiology, basically, like I had overtraining syndrome and a doctor that had worked with Lance's teams and Tour de France guys had offered me testosterone. And I was in ultra, an ultra runner and we didn't test. And of course, but of course, I was like, I, of course, I knew better. And I said, you know, no, thank you. I think I'll rest, stop drinking so much coffee. Uh, ratchet down the training to nothing so that I can recover, you know. And so I, I, uh, I had had this experience, and it's basically the same experience that happens to Alberto Salazar. He overtrains himself 
to such a degree that he looks for pre first prescription drugs and then testosterone as, as a, as a cure-all to his ailing body and to get himself back on the podium, which he ends up doing. And in 94, you know, he wins Comrades, an, an ultra marathon in South Africa. So I had had some real eerily similar experiences in my personal life and, you know, it just became something that I was, uh, you know, just obsessed with learning more about. Let's say a bit more about your own athletic background. I mean, I know you were a competitive runner, you're still a runner, you're a skier, but give us that broader sense, like what sports have you been into? And, and then tell us a bit more about your own running background. So after school, I moved to Seattle to work for Microsoft and the Eco Challenge had just been on television, Mark Burnett's show about adventure racing. And the community in Seattle, the endurance community was just all abuzz with adventure racing. And that's, you know, off-road mapping compass, you're navigating from uh, checkpoint to checkpoint. You usually have a rope section, there's def there's a foot section, a bike section, uh, a, a water section, and then there's usually something you repel or ascend up or zip line across. And so I got just wrapped up in this sport. And so I became, you know, an adventure racer in my free time as a software engineer at Microsoft. And we started to race really well. And so I left my job at some point to try to, you know, chase the dream of becoming a professional endurance athlete. And, uh, you know, that eventually led me to 24 hour mountain bike racing for a little while as a knee injury healed. And then I had a particular aptitude for ultra running, really. I, I, you know, even my, my teammates who were, you know, national class, world-class athletes, I was doing quite well in the long run sections. And so I started to dabble and train in ultra running and Seattle, I mean, you know, Montreal was based there. Um, the, the Montreal ultra running team at that time was like the big team to be a part of. And our, my adventure race team was sponsored by, uh, Montreal at the time. And then I just started trying my hand at ultras and, you know, happened to do pretty well. And so really just sort of switched over to that ultra, uh, adventure racing is a gear intensive sport. You have to have a team, uh, you know, that's with you to race in all your races and someone's always busy or hurt. So it's a production and ultra running was just so beautifully simple with the pair of shoes. I could kind of go and do anything. And so I think I spent 10 years on the ultra running scene, probably more like 12, 10 to 12 years on the ultra running scene until like 2015, I think. And then I transitioned, you know, I had been riding at the same time. So I started uh, doing adventure, uh, ultra running and adventure racing. And I started coaching athletes. I had been coaching friends at Microsoft for a while. And, you know, as a way to make a little bit more of a living, I'd coached athletes. I might be the first or one of the first ultra running coaches. We'd have to fact check that. I'm not sure, but <laughs> uh, I didn't know of any others. You know, there were businesses that ran coaching, uh, endurance coaching businesses, but no one, when I got into the game, was specifically involved in ultra running. And so, you know, coached some great athletes and just really got immersed in the entire ultra running community and was writing at the same time. And as my, as I was, uh, aging myself out or beating myself up in the ultra running world, I just started to focus more on writing, which I had always had sort of the idea to do or, or you know, a desire to do, especially once I got a, a column with trail runner uh, responsibility to, to write that. So I just kind of instantly had ambition and started putting together pitches and ideas and, and sending them around basically. So being in the running scene, being a sponsored runner yourself, you knew of the temptations you knew of some of the performance benefits that some of the various drugs out there had to offer 
And so that, and then I don't know how much this came into play in your own coaching. If you had athletes asking you, Hey, should I, you know, I hear a lot of people are taking X or Y or Z. Should I be looking at any of this? You were enough a part of this world that you were around this stuff, however closely or, you know, approximately that, that was, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and I can say in my time, I, I can't remember a single athlete asking me about anything really gray or, uh, outright illegal. Um, but we would, you know, I have certain friends that we would, you know, incessantly talk about it basically on runs and rides and training and, you know, people, the, the rumor mill in the endurance world is, vast and ever churning and so it was always there's always someone or something to talk about i mean back in the day we were talking about you know who's on caffeine or ibuprofen or overdoing it in those things and you know some athletes had hurt themselves as far as like dehydration and their kidneys and you know there was implications with overdoing ibuprofen back then so it was the whole gamut i mean we were just geeked on the whole thing and i would research it and possibly write it for my coaching column or you know I, I have a, a few times for different magazines written about like uh, kind of up and coming drugs that we're now seeing on the scene, whether it's, you know, um, high altitude drugs for at Leadville or whatever else. So that's it really. And we, we just were constantly sort of churning around the rumor mill and I was trying to write about it on the side um, until, you know, like I said, I think it was 15, it became my full-time job to, you know, mag write magazine stories. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this document that you open when at all costs with this document titled TikTok TikTok. Talk a bit about that and to to start issuing people into this world a bit. Yeah, so in 2016 the Nike Oregon project kind of came under suspicion. Mark Daly at the BBC and David Epstein at ProPublica had published a documentary and uh, in the UK and uh, a piece online for ProPublica about you know possible medical malpractice and prescription drug abuse on the Nike Oregon project. And, you know, this is a team that started in 2000 or 2001 rather, uh, by Nike and Alberto Salazar, you know, a stalwart, one of their old athletes who had become a marketing employee. And he thought he could, you know, bring American runners back to prominence, get them, get them back on the podium. And so, you know, as this story was unfolding, I was following it along, but I also knew if I knew I had Nike employees that I knew. And I, and so I just started doing a little scratching around, really. I knew athletes who'd run for the Oregon Project and I had heard a bunch of the rumors. And so for me, I would have loved to contribute to the reporting. And so I just started proceeding, like, let's see what I can figure out and what, what I can find. And, you know, like I said, when you're in this milieu and athletes trust you, you might end up with a, with a stolen file, <laughs> a file stolen by Russian hackers. And so that, that's basically what happened to me. Saying what, I mean, talk about a few of the elements that were contained in this document. So the document was prepared by the United States Anti-Doping Agency, USADA, and it was basically their entire case against the Nike Oregon project. And it was an effort to compel the Texas medical board to force the team's doctor to hand over his records. Uh, as soon as the Dr. Jeffrey Brown and Alberto Salazar and Nike and the Nike athletes knew they were being investigated, they clammed up, they would not participate, they would not share medical records 
they wouldn't help USADA in any way. They acted as though they were guilty. I have to say that out loud. And it was super clear that oh, you're not going to get any info out of us. And so USADA put together, here's everything we know in a document about what's going on at the Oregon Project in hopes that it would compel the Texas Medical Board to say, Dr. Brown, you're, you know, you're going to be in trouble if you don't start participating. And so Russian hackers, it's thought, the Fancy Bear organization, hacked into USADA's um, mail servers and stole this document and then, you know, sent it to certain people and journalists got it um, around the world eventually. And it eventually was fully published uh, on the internet, a slightly different version than mine, which is odd, but I couldn't, I couldn't discern what was different. I read them both. And so the document, you know, really just sort of detailed everything uh, that USADA had found that might be off color or illegal at the Oregon Project. And so it's really implicated Dr. Brown, the team's doctor, the team's endocrinologist in Alberto, and sort of manipulating athletes, holding salaries over their heads so that they would get certain treatments that were borderline or illegal. And, um, you know, it turned out that most of the athletes had prescriptions for similar drugs that, you know, are not first conditions that aren't common amongst athletes. I'd, I guess I'd say it like that way. It was like thyroid. I mean, asthma is, of course, but, you know, the thyroid medication. And when USADA started looking at um, these athletes' medical records that they could get their hands on, they really, because they sometimes would just get them from the athlete. Doctor, If the doctor wouldn't turn them over, sometimes the athlete would say, I've got a copy, here's my copy. And they found that the doctor was going ahead and prescribing them thyroid medications, even though they weren't out of the normal range, the 0.4 to uh, 4.12, I think, TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, that's what they're measuring. Anyway, if you're in that range, you're normal and you're fine. If you're out of that range, you're tired, and you have a condition, you have a thyroid condition. But Dr. Brown was, I mean, it's so clear and he did it so often with so many athletes. He was prescribing them this drug. It helps your metabolism. So it helps you get down to the race weight you need to be at. It gives you energy to train. Uh, and Alberto had a pet theory that it would help boost your testosterone as well. And so the document sort of laid this out. And, and that's the document I got my hands on and then, you know, mobilized and started pitching around to see if anyone was interested in it. And I, I was kind of, uh, you know, I asked, you know, when I contacted uh, my an editor at the New York Times, I was like, disabuse me of the idea that I'm the only one with this, because I think I am. But I didn't know. I, I assumed, you know, if it was out there, maybe Juliet McCurr at the New York Times has it. And so they immediately got back to me and we started working on, you know, what I was going to write for them. And, and so that's really how the story sort of got rolling, seriously got rolling for me. And the subtitle of your book is inside Nike running and its culture of deception. But there's a very interesting thing that happens through this book, right? Because it's not just about Nike running. It is kind of a history of the Oregon project, but you do talk about Lance Armstrong and we're talking about sort of it. We are talking, frankly, about a culture at Nike, right? And so I think that one of the things that was evident to me is like, this is not limited to being a book about this specific channel or segment at Nike. It, it does sort of raise questions or ask questions about the company broadly, right? And so I think I just say that, I guess, to make it clear, like for someone's like, well, I don't really care only about the running side of this. It's like, 
there's a lot in here that's very much worth thinking through. And I, part of the reason I keep giving you a, a hard time about like, I hate this book. Like I was that kid growing up, right? I mean, who a lot of my athletic heroes, you know, were on team Nike and by the way, still are on team Nike to this day. And it's um, while a number of these different stories have come out before I think this rather relentless narrative, putting the timeline all together, all of it in one place, it's not a great look. You know, I, I got to say, like, one of my favorite moments in the book is when you talk about them reopening or kind of rededicating the the Alberto Salazar Center, right? And there were something, I think, like 400 Nike employees who sort of protested this. Those are some of the heroes in this narrative, I think, where it's like, it's not like, like, so what I don't want to do here is just demonize everyone who works at Nike or whoever has or anything like that. And yet, like, I think the real value of your book is that it is documenting a lot of what has happened. And I think we all as consumers need to think about, is this the type of company we want to support? And it, it also asks like, how are other companies doing? How are other brands doing? Is Nike the wild, terrible exception as it were in this? And everybody else is lovely and, you know, doing everything absolutely by the book. There's a lot of questions that are raised at the corporate competitive level in these athletic-based, athletic performance-focused brands. There's a lot to touch on there. I mean, I, I knew writing the book. So uh, the contract for the book was really to write the history of the Nike Oregon project. Yeah. But the further I went into the history of the company that spawned the Nike Oregon project, the more I realized there was an antecedent team you know, the, the uh, Athletics West team at the end of the 70s and, eight, and early 80s. And something sim very similar had happened to them. They were sort of shut down. They were shuttered in disgrace. An athlete had died uh, on, in the Nike facilities after a run. And, you know, it was that story was shrouded in mystery. And, and so I set out to describe the history in a in a more full way you know some of these stories have been told elsewhere disparate places to pull them all in and like you know make the narrative clear that this is the company uh and this is where it started and this is how we got to here i felt like i had to tell from there to here or it would feel somewhat incomplete or or it would feel somewhat hollow like oh this is obviously just a one-off but you know the lance armstrong story actually overlapped and alberto had coached lance armstrong so that was definitely apparent to me that that was going to be part of the book for sure and so i mean the further i went back and the more people i talked to you know it's quite shocking really there's so many stories and rumors you hear uh, about nike and i had started to hear them myself and some of them i could corroborate and some of them i couldn't and so those stories that i could fact check and back up you know made the book and i think just uh, really just sort of spelled out or made apparent that Nike's ailing in some ways right up, not just the athletes, but right up to the corporate, you know, the boardroom. Let me ask you this question. You know, one of the things in the book is, and you've already kind of said this, I feel like we have like what's legal and illegal is a bit of a moving target. And as you have said, and as you've talked, as, as you and I have talked about in other conversations, like there's a whole lot of gray areas here that 
coaches and athletes are kind of playing in and sort of seeing well, can we take a bit of this, but still stay within legal levels and, and that type of thing? I got to say there at a certain point in the book, I definitely kind of had that feeling of that. You will hear sometimes like, man, screw this. Why not just make everything legal? Right. And like, go have at it. Right. Yeah. And this is too hard to try to, to try to enforce strict regulation of all this stuff, especially when we're getting into some gray areas. And so what is your best argument against the let's throw our hands in the world, just make everything legal? Because this is like a, a thing that we will hear sometimes, right? Like, screw it. Go do your thing. Let's see who crosses the line first. I understand that impulse and that argument. I mean, when I, and I think about football often, I want to see the biggest, strongest guys tackling and the you know the fastest guys running touchdowns from end zone to end zone um but the best argument i think against it is if you back that up you know the pipeline for those athletes they start as children and they start as your kid or my kid or our friend's kid and the idea that they have to take random substances i mean we saw the fallout from the east germans when they started uh, testing the drugs on women, on the women, they, they found that testosterone and steroids really worked on women because women have lower levels of testosterone and, and male hormones, obviously. And so, you know, th that left a legacy, a wake of damaged people with baby deformity, deformities in their children, their subsequent children that they had and all sorts of health complications. And so that gets forgotten. That was a while ago. That was the 72, 76 Olympics. And so that's still a possibility if it's the Wild West. You know, you would get kids starting earlier and earlier, you know, maybe even before they're done puberty having to take human growth hormone or or these other drugs and you know the long-term studies on some of these drugs just haven't been done and so you could end up with cancer we, we talked about this Doc, dr michele ferrari basically said i think i gave lance armstrong cancer because he was giving them him hgh and testosterone and in the recent 30 for 30 lance basically nods to this like yeah i th we think it was the hgh he says that that could have contributed to my cancer and so you don't know really the long-term effects of these drugs. And some athletes might not even care. And I mentioned this the other day, there was some research that said, you know, if you could win a gold medal today, but you die in 10 years, would you, would you take this pill to win a gold medal if you die in 10 years? And some absurd number, like 80% of the athletes said anonymously that they would take the drug, which is shocking, right? Who would, who would make that that trade-off, but apparently, you know, certain athletes at certain levels are definitely willing to do that. So the fact that kids would have to dope early and earlier is um, really one of the best arguments. I mean, the other one is usually that that is said as such that right, let's open everything up. Then it's really a level playing field, and it's not a level playing field because um, there's a genetic spectrum for how you respond to drugs versus how I respond to drugs. I know. I have friends, the best example of this is coffee. I have friends who can drink a cup of coffee and go to bed. I would 100% be up all night. I'm a hyper responder to coffee. And so that's true of all substances and hormones and drugs that you take. You know, you could be on the non-responder side or the, you know, hyper responder side. And so now we're just ratcheting up the drugs and, you know, your whole life is about how many substances you can take. But, you know, it's not a level playing field if you're taking, you know, um, 
if you're getting uh, out of an, one injection of EPO, if you're getting a 25% increase in performance, and I'm not because I'm not a hyper responder like you are. So that's not a level playing field. You know, right now they test hermaticret to, to try to catch athletes on EPO. And, you know, for instance, through all the Lance Armstrong books, it came out that I think Tyler Hamilton, you know, they test you up to 50% because nobody really has hermaticret over 50%. Human beings don't even trained athletes. And Tyler genetically out of the box was like a 46 or a 48. So he could only take a teeny bit of EPO before he got to that line. Whereas they say Lance Armstrong was like a, a, a 40 or a 42. So he could take two or three times as much EPO as Tyler. So Tyler was out of the box, probably a better athlete. But now you've got the substances getting in the way and contributing to Lance being better or, or just as good as Tyler, but he's got to take more drug. He's got to take more substance. So that's one of the things where it's like, you know, everyone in the Tour de France was doping. So it was a level playing field. Well, well, no, I mean, Tyler for, through EPO got a, you know, whatever that is, if, if it's six, he went up 4%, that's 8% increase in performance, let's say, and Lance gets 16. So that's still not a level playing field. He's getting 16% performance increase, let's say, if, if it's one-to-one -one with performance versus hermaticrit, and I'm just doubling the number there. But anyway, and so, you know, genetics just make it not a level playing field uh, if everyone were to be doping, because you could be, like I said, a hyper responder to certain things and it, the drug could have no effect on me or very little effect on me. And so that's still not fair. Um, but the most compelling one really is how early are our sons and daughters going to have to take these drugs if they want to compete. And that's somewhat horrifying, especially when you look at the East Germans and what happened to them with a somewhat haphazard um, well, that was very systematic, I should say. Alberto Salazar's haphazard use of uh, prescription drugs through Dr. Jeffrey Brown, that was somewhat haphazard. Sometimes the athletes weren't tested for their levels and, you know, everyone was on this drug calcitonin and he thought it helped improve bone strength and that's a scourge in running because you're pounding constantly on the road. And it turns out it's been implicated in increasing cancer rates. And he didn't know that because he's not a doctor. <laughs> and the doctor prescribing it probably shouldn't have, and he probably should have looked into it a little bit harder, but, you know, th all sorts of things like that. And there's a case where, you know, Mo, Mo Farah, you know, the, the great quad gold medalist from the UK, you know, he had a condition where he had a naturally high level of calcium in his body. His body just produced a naturally high level. Well, Alberto was giving him these seemingly innocuous drugs, uh, vitamin D, which helps your absorption of calcium. And he's giving him, you know, prescription doses, 50,000 IUs twice a week. And and that's just absurd to begin with. But, you know, that that would help you increase uh, or hold on to absorb more calcium. And then they're giving him this cancer drug, calcitonin, on top of that, because he didn't know Mo had this condition. And that's what you get when you have a coach acting as doctor. And so it could have caused renal failure or, you know, um, aneurysms, all sorts of problems for Mo had he kept on those drugs. But luckily his UK doctor said, whoa, 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 we got to stop this and get him cleaned off everything before we, before we uh, assess what he's on. And that's one of the infuriating parts of this book is that Salazar would run around claiming that they were being the most scientific, right? They were the most scientific at the, the Oregon project. And it's like, you definitely weren't like you're just a crackpot that's just throwing your athletes on these drugs that absolutely are not 
like in line with solid science. And so it's just um, one of the infuriating parts of the Salazar story. That certainly was one of them, right? To constantly be talking about how they were the most scientific. And it's just like you have anecdote and evidence upon anecdote and evidence that that just isn't true. And in fact, you were giving, as you just said, athletes certain things that was like counter, absolutely counterproductive to to performance um, and certainly longevity. Yeah, that's the most upsetting part, right? Like this could have long-term detrimental effects. And thyroid medications are not, a tri- it's not a trifling drug. The, these hormones, you know, it, it took Adam Goucher 10 years to wean himself off a drug he did not need. Yeah. He never tested out a range. But Dr. Brown gave him the drug anyway, hoping it would improve his performance. And maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Regardless, you've now given him this arbitrage that he has to carry around, this drug he's got to worry about, this very powerful prescription drug. And too much thyroid hormone is just as bad as too little. You feel like crap and you're not going to race or train very well. But yeah, I mean, he, it, me going back to look at his career and what we now know about what he was doing, that clearly showed me that you know, he was on, he had created, like I'd said earlier, his physiology, he had overtrained himself to such a degree. He had a major comeback in the 90s and he, he credited Prozac and he and, and admitted to be on prednisone. And then secretly in 91, he started taking testosterone. Now, of course, that's going to make you feel better and increase your performance. But he had, you know, overtrained himself. So all these hormones were suppressed and, and he was in sort of this fight or flight sort of you know, unhealthy range. And he used prescription drugs and illegal performance enhancing drugs to bring himself back to have one final victory in the 94 comrades. But then when he became a coach, you can see all these same substances. He was on thyroid. He gives his athletes thyroid because that helped me. He's got Galen Rupp on prednisone because he was on prednisone uh, when he was racing. And prednisone, you know, is popular or had been popular in the Tour de France. It's a systemic anti-inflammatory. It, it's a drug that you can take during the tour or during a training block and have to sleep like half as much. I mean, you're just wired. It kind of messes with your personality as well. And it doesn't allow you to sleep a restful night, really. And you get half the sleep, but you can get up and train, man. You've got energy to go. And so he'd intermittently have Galen on and off this drug. And you can really see how he got from A to B with his own drug use uh, back in the day. And, and, And really just an upgraded version on some level, but trying to throw it at the wall. So, I mean, the 10,000 foot view is that he was overtraining the athletes like he'd overtrained himself because it takes an extreme level of training to get on the top of an Olympic podium to, you have to train that hard. And, you know, as the physiology of the athletes started to degrade, then he'd get them on thyroid or he'd, you know, make sure they have uh, Advair or these uh, asthma drugs that they may or may not need. And so, it's really quite shocking. And when you, the book, I hope puts the pieces together, like he was doing this in his own career and this happened to him and he used drugs to get back to a level where he could train effectively. And, and of course he's doing it with the athletes and, you know, eventually, uh, it came back around to bite him in the butt and he was suspended, you know, from sport for four years from by USADA for it. So when you were just talking, you said you have to train like super hard or super high volume, if you're going to get to an elite elite level you're saying that's what he assumed or you're saying like no that's actually true if you're going to go podium that's a good question i mean i mean i i don't know of an olympic gold medalist who didn't have 
what you or I would look at as impossible training to accomplish. Both, I could probably do the volume or could have done the volume in my day, but never the speed and the volume that they uh -huh. handle. I mean, it, it is like what, what Kipchoge is doing now, you know, we, we simply couldn't do it. And it's, so he's trained his whole life to be this athlete. And if you, you know, you make strides and sometimes you get injured and fall back. But yeah, I, I think universally at the top of the podium, there's a, an insane level of training. And you see this happen in college. Good high school athletes come into college programs and only the ones that are like um, resilient enough to last usually end up running all four years or, or become good athletes. It's almost like it's a self-selecting program where like we're going to ratchet everything up and you're either good enough and resilient enough to stick around or you fall to the wayside. And there is probably an argument that those athletes could have been just as good with less training or maybe more focus on rest and recovery but it's i think it's just more likely uh more likely than not that these athletes are training at what most people would consider just insane levels i just want to get clear but you're saying and they have to it does seem like we're maybe more than ever i'm not sure like we have the kind of counter training to this right that actually wants to stress lower workloads and and just making sure we aren't overtraining athletes right and then like let's keep people fresh so that when they are on the start line they are actually ready to go give this maximal effort but we've got to be really careful about how often we're going to say redline the athlete or something like that but but what you're saying right now is nope i can't think of anybody who's been truly elite that hasn't done big training loads at pretty high intensities or extremely high intensities. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I spent, when I first got into coaching and, and training myself, I, I, you know, spent time reading all the previous books and what Lydia was doing. And, you know, it's intensity or volume. Those are the two dials. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm unaware of anyone who, you know, CrossFit uh, endurance was popular for a while. And it uh, seemed to purport that you could turn down the volume and still achieve greatness and you know there are no athletes on the top of olympic podiums that train in crossfit endurance it's just they don't even have the time i mean of course maybe that helped push the pendulum a little towards focus on strength a little more in the off season or something but you know kipchoge's not doing crossfit classes and his training is definitely like 100 plus miles a week and and i don't know i just don't know of maybe i'm wrong hopefully maybe uh, a, a listener will be able to chime in here I mean, I know Sebco was doing interesting things back in his day with a little lower volume, but tons of high intensity, really hard work. And so, you know, those are the two dials. And one of them's got to be pegged at some point to beat the world's best. On some level, you have to reach levels in training that are, you know, if you're looking for world records that maybe have never been approached or, or accomplished before. And, and then, you know, you recover and hopefully you can... Uh, repeat that in the event or the record attempt at a record but yeah I'm, I'm curious if anyone's out there and is aware of like a lower volume athlete who's been a gold medalist in a, in a distance event I'd, I'd love to hear it I'm just unaware of it again as infuriating as this book is here's the part where you kind of go as a reader I feel like you go from being really upset and pissed off and angry to feeling bouts of sympathy with some of the athletes or even some of the coaches, et cetera. And like, if you just get done saying, well, if you're going to be elite, you kind of have to do 
high intensity, high volume workout type of things. It's like, well, then to do that, you to really do that at a truly elite level, it does require you then to take some stuff to help you deal with being overtrained. And it's interesting, right? I think maybe the most sympathetic part of the Salazar story I find is like, this is a guy who was willing to die to win races. And that's something that we admire. Like that's something I still admire as messed up as that is, I guess. But we like to see that. That's why we watch these competitions and it's why we celebrate these competitors, right? Like I'll give everything to this. And so I think for in Salazar's own case or any highly competitive athlete in any sport, it kind of starts to make sense. On the one hand, those are the athletes we celebrate and yet we're going to then tell them, but you're not allowed to take X or Y or Z because it might shorten your life or your children might have birth defects or something. And they're like, but wait, weren't you the guy just celebrating the fact that like I literally almost died crossing or did die crossing that finish line? So what's going on here, right? Like there's something we're confused about here. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, the idea that you have to be on something I don't necessarily agree. I mean, in, in, in sort of stepwise training, you're taking each block to push the athlete a little further and then coming back, allowing them to recover, but not detrain. And then you're taking another step up and an athlete who does this over their lifetime, you know, doesn't, you know, they need to eat right and they need to sleep. Um, I mean, you could, so this is a whole, uh, another argument where Alberto at one point was speaking at Duke University and said, you know, I don't think you can be top five without being on EPO. And so he believed that at the time. I, I don't know if he still believes that. And so that's a whole nother discussion. Maybe the, it is so corrupted at the top that you simply can't compete unless you're on something. And so that is one argument. I mean, the, the idea if they were all clean, they're still going to be a, a champion, obviously. Somebody's got to win. And, and you know, doing it right in that really intelligently monitoring hormone level so that we can drop training, not, not feed you full of the hormone you're lacking, but, oh, that's an indicator that as an, as an organism, you are overtrained. You're deprioritizing sexual activity, which is the drop in testosterone, which is the same in females, they lose their menstrual cycle. And so that's a fight or flight athlete that is overtrained so much, their body is now deprioritizing um, sexual intercourse or reproduction. And so we know this, we see this, and allowing the athlete to eat and sleep and stop training so hard brings them back up to normal levels. But he was short-circuiting that by putting them on drugs. Now, I don't think that's necessary. It's certainly way harder to do it the right way to allow them enough time to train. But that's what these programs are that are sponsored by Brooks or Nike. You know, they're the best in the world. Let's foster the athletes in the right way. But there's no handbook for this. You know, they hire a guy like Alberto because he did it himself. He was the best marathoner from 80 to 82, probably, and, and set a world record. It was since rescinded, the course was found short. But, you know, he was one of the best marathoners in the world for three, five years. And so that's the best you can do. You can hire a sports scientist, but he's never almost run himself to death. 
And so coaching is a tricky thing, right? And so you want someone with a lot of uh, first person perspective on what it's like to get dehydrated, how to come back from a bonk, all that stuff. And then just to have the grit that Alberto had to, you know, keep running five, sub five minute miles in a, in a marathon. It's just, it's, it's, it is impressive the athletes that can do that. Um, but it's a cheat code to then take testosterone to allow you to recover faster or, you know, thyroid hormone cause you're tired. Um, and, and that's where it obviously crosses the line. Now the gray area is like that thyroid medication isn't outright illegal. You should have a prescription. You have to have a prescription, uh, for it. And if you have a doctor that's willing to prescribe it to you without that prescription, obviously you're doing something, uh, you know, counter to the spirit of the sport as they say. And so I, I, I mean, if everyone were clean, you would still have gold medal winners doing sort of a stepwise progression with recovery weeks and, you know, gradually improving. And the truth of it is, is since there's a hundred, a thousand other athletes trying to do it the same way, you do have to walk that line where you're pushing your body to this fine line of if, if I, if I run this next 400 at that same pace, I might injure myself. So you've fallen on the wrong side. Now you're injured for a couple of weeks or maybe your season's over. And so coaching and intelligent athletes that have this intuitive sense of where their body's at, you know, and you learn that through high school and college and the years that you go through it. But, you know, you have to, I mean, you have to train yourself to that razor's edge, really, if you want to compete at the Olympic gold, for an Olympic gold at that level, because someone else is doing it. And some number of them, some percentage of, let's say there's a thousand athletes that want to win the 5,000, you know, some number of these professional athletes fall over the other side, fall off the razor's edge and they're injured and they never even show it. They never even toe the line at the Olympics. And that's because, you know, you're competing against someone who is pushing the level up a little higher and running a little harder and doing a little more. And, you know, it comes down to your biology and your physiology and your training history. Can you handle that? Recover, come back and get a little better, a little faster. I mean, and it takes a lot of care and a lot of crunch in numbers and a lot of honesty with yourself and how you feel and honesty between you and your coach and what you can handle. And, you know, are you drinking a, a two French presses before you go to the track because you're burnt out or, you know, and if, are you not telling your coach that? And so it's a messy, messy thing, really. But I, I do, I'm just all say all that to say, I think you can, you know, in the perfect world, you could, you know, somebody's got to be the fastest and you can certainly uh, train yourself in a clean way. Um, I mean, for sure, because I know athletes who've done it, I tried to do it myself. And sometimes I fell into the injury, into the uh, injury world. And sometimes I didn't. And, you know, sometimes you peak before the race comes and you leave your best training on the trail or on the mountain. And that's all like coaching magic, this whole uh, milieu of trying to figure out where the athlete's at, where their head's at, you know, if they're getting close to overtraining or whatever. I just think it's it's totally possible. It's just the drugs muddy the waters. And and now if you think you're training as hard as you can on that razor's edge, but this guy's also taken a little bit of EPO, microdosing or whatever, you know, and you've been training this way your whole life. You know, one of the things with the gouchers that was sad is, and I mentioned this at the end of the book, Kara's like, I never knew how good I was, you know, because she won a medal at the World Championships in 2007 and then was upgraded to second place after they caught the athlete, you know, they busted the athlete for doping. And so she's unclear of who was doped or who wasn't. And so it's super sad, you know, Kara trained so hard and works, you know, 
so diligently on this life as being an athlete. At one point she said she missed the first time Colt, her son walked because she was at a race or she was at, I think she was at a race. She was away for the weekend racing. And so she sacrificed all this. And yet at the end of the day, she can't really tell you how good she was because the waters were completely muddy with doping and gray area nonsense. And so that, that's unfortunately the, the, the state of the sport that we're in right now. And it's, it's just a nasty thing to have to consider to give your life to something like that. And then, you know, realize, oh, like, this whole thing is so muddy. No one's really on the up and up and who knows how good I was. I want to talk about complicity and, you know, who should bear the most blame when it comes to sort of these sort of things. And so we've got corporations, right? Applying pressure. We've got coaches applying pressure. We've got doctors that are willing to write prescriptions for athletes who don't need certain medications. Then there's the athletes themselves, right? And your book talks very specifically about how this happened historically at Nike, under Salazar, et cetera, et cetera. But as just a broader question now, how should we be thinking about these things, right? If we're, if we're actually going to do anything about this, right? Like, do we just blame the athlete first and foremost? Like it is on you and when you're busted and you have to stand there crying in front of the microphone about how you're sorry, how you let everybody down, that's, you get exactly what you deserved. Or should we feel more sympathy with the athletes because the pressures are all coming from above? Like, do you, how do you think about this? The sports, the business world has bled into the sports world, and it's a win at all costs culture, um, and that has had a corrupting influence for sure. But there's no way around that. Some one person has to stand at the top of the podium, and that one person is probably going to make more money in salary the next year or the next time their contract's up. And so it's complicated, and it's basically a business now. And so at the end of the day the athlete is responsible for what goes into their body and USADA reminds them of that. And so if they take a substance, um, I, I mean, I would say even if they're tricked into taking something, they're uh, liable for it if they get caught. Now, when you look at like Galen Rupp, who met Alberto when he was 14 and started training with him when he was 15, like you have to feel sympathy for that poor guy. He was like basically groomed by Alberto to doing everything, training supplements in Alberto's way, in his, in the way Alberto does things. You know, this was bestowed upon Galen that this is the way we do this. And so, you know, when you start with a child or someone who's not fully an adult yet, I, I do think the coach is, uh, you know, way more responsible for the, for the mind. If the person's a minor, then, you know, that has to lay on his shoulders. And that's why USADA can go after coaches and doctors and facilitators, basically. Um, you know, I heard a, um, a track and field journalist say he doesn't understand why, you know, no athletes were popped in this scenario. And it was really, we're, no, we're not caught, we're not banned. And it was really, you know, it's pretty clear. It's, it's the environment that was created, you know, from Nike on down with Alberto you know, it, it, the things he were doing were, were, were ridiculous at times. And, and the fat shaming of women and doing it in front of other athletes, shaming the athletes in front of each other and, you know, giving an athlete diuretics or to, so they'll get down to weight or changing their birth control pills so they'll menstruate less often because there's ways to manipulate blood levels. And he found that he could do it with birth control pills. And so, 
at that level, it's, I mean, it fully lands on the coach. What are you doing? Are you, he's traveling around with testosterone cream in his bag, yet he can't prove that he has a medical need for it. And that's why those rules are in place. And so I, I mean, that seems pretty clear to me, you know, your coach can't have vials of EPO in his bag and tubes of testosterone. And if he gets caught, he better be able to uh, prove that he has a medical need for these things. But there's rules in place that the training uh, facilitators, whether it's doctors or mostly just the coach, you know, they're not trafficking in these illegal drugs because it just muddies the waters. Was Alberto given Galen Rupp testosterone? It looks very likely. There wasn't enough proof to bust Galen, but you have to feel for the poor guy. I mean, they were deeply betrayed by their coach, Kara too. She said she came to love him as a father and Galen as a brother. And like, that was her family structure. She thought she was going to be with Nike forever. And the whole organization betrayed her from her salary. You know, she got pregnant. She couldn't race as often as they wanted. And even though they guaranteed her, they told her verbally, don't worry about your salary. You'll get paid. We know you're just off because you're pregnant. They stopped paying her the moment they needed the money for some other athlete. And so, you know, that's the corporate betrayal. But then, of course, it trickles on down as we know where, you know, her Adam and Alberto weren't getting along. And, you know, Adam thinks that the team psychologist and the coach were trying to undermine their marriage. And so it just becomes this like nasty drama where, you know, probably everyone's at fault in this situation that it got so, uh, so far down this road where they turned to hate each other. But, you know, Alberto was banned for a reason and he was doing things he shouldn't have been doing. And that's pretty clear. But you can see just from the top on down, like how Alberto could exist because some of the corporate executives that were his boss or his boss's boss, you know, these are guys who are known for threatening to kill people or trying to fight people at track and field races. And that's the Nike arrogance. People, I heard that repeatedly, like, yeah, I mean, that's the way those guys operate. It was funny, right? We were supposed to record this conversation yesterday, but then we just ended up talking for, I think, seven hours, like about all of this, and which is probably helpful now to distill because this is like, this is, I keep saying this is a big book in the sense of like, it just opens up so many different things for anyone interested in athletics to be thinking about, right? And you made a really interesting point on this topic that, you know, you were saying if Nike can afford to spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, funding the Oregon project, they could also turn around and spend a million bucks to test their own athletes to ensure that anyone in their program is clean. And I thought that was a great point that I hadn't really thought about. But when we come into the complicity question of should we be most mad at the companies, the corporations, or the specific coaches, or the athletes, it's like, if these companies really wanted to ensure that their athletes, if you're going to run under our logo, you know, fly our flag, you are definitely going to be clean, they actually could be taking quite a few steps to ensure that that was the case. And we're kind of in the opposite of that reality right now, right? Yeah, we're in a world where they, Justin Gatlin serves a ban and then they, Nike re-signs him to a, to a contract. And so if they were to, 
you know, wholeheartedly take on the concept of clean sport. Like you were just saying, they could do any number of things. You know, the market cap for Nike as a corporation is $160 billion. They make some, last I looked, I think it was $44 billion in revenue a year. And they were spending about a million of that on this Nike Oregon team. Now, you could spend another million and seemingly write it off based on how much money they make. and and basically create a facility or a system where the athletes just show up with some urine every week on a Friday, or you watch them piss into a cup. You know that's how USADA does it to make sure you're not they're not cheating with someone else's urine. But you know they could easily institute something like this, and maybe it's just a library of the of the athletes' urine until there's some suspicion. But you know you could easily just send that off to USADA to have them test. I mean you could basically create a mini USADA right on right on Nike campus. If you wanted to assure that the athletes were, you know, super clean. Now that only, I guess, includes the athletes that train and and the Nike Oregon project has been disbanded because of all this. So the Bowerman track club is now on campus and Shalane Flanagan and Jerry Schumacher running that team. And so, you know, if there's no culture of this deception and cheating, then, you know, if you were to propose that to them now, I'm sure they'd say this is totally unnecessary. The athletes, we've all learned a lesson from what Alberto's doing, and we're not going to mess around in gray area drugs, but maybe in a year or two, people start to forget new athletes come in with different moral um, sort of ideas about what's right, what's wrong, and what's moral. And so, yeah, I mean, they could go wholeheartedly at clean sport, and they would change it, you know, they could change it in innumerable ways from who they hire, who they pay to run for them, or, you know, just setting up some sort of system where they can check the athletes on a weekly basis. You know, and they make so much, they're the most dominant sports brand in the world. And so maybe Brooks doesn't have a budget, wouldn't have a budget for this in any universe because they're razor thin, mar- thin margins, but Nike clearly does. And they sponsor the most athletes and they pay the most uh, people on earth to run and, and, they could take some of that revenue and uh, and definitely change the game. You know, they could sign the Clean Sport Collective, and they could turn the whole thing around in a in the drop of a dime if they cared. Um, now, it, I often try to remember to say there's thousands of employees there that are good people, and there's a few, probably a few, a handful, maybe too many bad eggs. But like, you know, the way they've been dominating the sport and running the sport is just, I mean, it's totally out of control. And I often, I make the analogy of an Exxon CEO going to work for the EPA. So they do that as well. You know, Sebco is the president of World Athletics. He used to be a Nike athlete. There was a hubbub about him still being on the dole from Nike and being the president of WADA or or, uh, World Athletics and getting paid from both sides. So whose best interest does he have in mind? His sponsor that's been with him since he was a 20-year-old? And so those kind of conflicts come up all the time. Craig Masback was the uh, president of uh, USATF. He was a longtime Nike stalwart. Like, So the Nike people go and work in these high-level organizations. And with the shoe technology that recently came out, you know, USATF and World Athletics has basically uh, adjudicated this so that it's a benefit to Nike. And that you could argue is because they've former Nike athletes and employees now run these organizations. And so there's a whole, um, I mean, that's a whole can of worms that is often mentioned, but, you know, Nike funds the track meets that happen in America, in the world. And Prefontaine's roommate told me when I first started doing the reporting, he he just wanted to impress uh, on me that without Nike, a lot of these track meets, 
you know, the Diamond League track meet specifically, but, you know, they just sponsor the whole world of, of athletics. And, and so he was like, you know, for all the bad they do, we kind of have to have them around. Without Nike sponsorship, many of these track meets wouldn't happen. The sport might even just fail. It might uh, cease to exist. Now, I don't necessarily believe that. I think a lot of the other sponsors would step up, but they have undue power for sure. And, and, you know, something needs to be done about that. And, you know, there's a cleaning of the house that's happened a little bit at Nike already. And, you know, hopefully that will continue. Where do you think we are today in distance running with respect to performance enhancing drugs? Are we, has anything changed? Are we, I mean, you've mentioned certain people, you know, are no longer at Nike or something, but as a whole, right, the global sport do you think we are better today with this than we were exactly the same worse or do you have you're like i honestly don't have the indicators or the evidence to be able to even answer that question yeah it's a tough question obviously for obvious reasons because people are cheating uh, in secret uh, but you know there's been a rash of east africans failing drug tests lately the 2016 gold medal marathon champion got popped and you know it, it keeps happening um and so those are very clear indicators that they had probably been doping since they started dominating the sport and you know here's another discussion about you know in america we have the united states anti-doping agency and they keep an eye on american athletes well for the last 30 years kenya has had no USADA. They've had no in-state doping organization, period. And so they were, the athletes that lived in Kenya uh, and Ethiopia were just tested way less frequently than American athletes. And so, you know, that's sort of an Occam's razor if you're looking at why are they so much better than we are. Now, there's been some compelling physiological explanations where they, how they, this tribe, the Kalenjin, evolved at altitude, then went to lower. So they're, they have lower distal weight, low, smaller ankles, like when you look at the athletes and compare them. And, you know, all that is interesting and compelling. But, you know, if you apply Occam's razor, it's like, oh, they're not even drug tested. And so that is a wet blanket of a thing to say. And I've unfortunately had to say it for, you know, years and years and years now, like the most obvious answer to the, the difference in performance between American athletes and the East Africans is the fact that we're tested and they're not. I mean, that that's changing now. You know, that's getting better and things are getting better all over the world and more countries are, you know, creating uh, anti-doping agencies. But we've seen two eras, two sort of epochs here with the Lance Armstrong era. You know, there was uh, so much outright cheating with EPO and testosterone and um, you know, that scared the athletes, I think, in some ways. And David Walsh has a great quote about this. Like, the anti-doping movement has gone far, but not far enough, because now you see athletes using legal drugs for the wrong reasons. And David Walsh is the journalist um, that helped expose Lance Armstrong. Um, and so he gets this better than anyone else. But, you know, now we're seeing diuretics in the sport and, and um, you know, everything that El everything on Alberto's menu, really. Prescription drugs that might help you get 2 3%. You add the thyroid to the asthma medication the athlete doesn't need and didn't test, you know, didn't test as though they had asthma. And now you've got 5% of this collective effort. And, you know, of course, they're training hard. They're trying to sleep right. They're trying to eat right. So th that's just the basics that everyone's doing. And so I feel like from the Armstrong era, we've moved into this era of prescription drugs. And, you know, Bradley Wiggins and Chris Froome have all been implicated in similar things. Um... And so it does seem like that was the era we've maybe just left. 
And, but I say that knowing full well that, you know, a lot of East African athletes have been caught with the, the drugs of the Armstrong era. And so those are still around. The idea, one of the, some athletes and coaches and experts in this think they just moved to microdosing where you take a little bit of EPO, uh, not enough to get caught. And with testosterone, you know, they're testing your, the basic test is a ratio test. So you have epi, testosterone to epitestosterone is a ratio test. And so in the beginning, athletes were just taking testosterone and it would spike that number in ratio in comparison to epitestosterone. Floyd Landis got busted from that ratio test, for instance. And and then they figured out from that era that, oh, well, we need to add add some epitestosterone testosterone to this mixture, to this cream or whatever they're injecting. And so for years, they got away with it that way because there's, the ratio was still close to one to one and below the one to four that would trip a test. So they're able to take the testosterone, they just took it with the epitest. So they're always, I mean, that's one example of how they're sort of figuring out uh, drug cheats are and coaches, because um, there's so much money in this, right? That, you know, if you create the Frankenstein monster who wins all the gold medals, as his coach, you're gonna become a millionaire as well. He's gonna pay you quite well. And so, yeah, I mean, the male ego, I think is a huge uh, issue with drugs and cheating, you know, because we see the drug use in like recreational athletes or master athletes who there's no money on the line whatsoever. And and how do I explain that? If I'm explaining professional sport is corrupt with money, how do I explain the 60-year-old, you know, who's taken HGH and, and testosterone and then getting caught inadvertently at a, at a race that he didn't know he was even going to be tested? And so, I mean, it's happening in probably all sports. I had a uh, drug performance enhancing drug expert in America who helped set up the basic drug system before USADA basically say to me, everything on TV is corrupt. Everything you would see on television, the presumption being there's so much money in the sport if it's on TV that, that it's corrupt with drugs in some way. And, and I don't necessarily believe that. That is a big claim, right? I mean, that is, we're talking NFL, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball. I mean, do we really like, okay, if that, if that claim is true, well, then that's damning of literally every athletic competition we watch on television. And if it's not true, how not true is it? Is it like 80% true, 10% true? I mean, so endurance sports in particular, there's ways, there are drugs and ways to cheat that seem to really benefit it. And, you know, for shooting a basketball or, I mean, there, there are probably drugs that are very good at creating explosive power that LeBron James or whoever needs to get to the rim or to, or to cross over somebody and, and dribble past them. So, I mean, it's so easily a benefit, so obviously a benefit for endurance sports that it's, I, I would just guess that it's way more of a problem because there's way more of a benefit. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I can't imagine that, you know, the NFL just doesn't really care about testing and, and guys who get popped are then just, they serve their suspension and they come back and they're still heroes and nobody cares. But in endurance sports, you know, you're, it's a it's a scarlet letter for sure. And you, you know, you're derided for the rest of your career. And it's pointed out in every article that you're mentioned in, uh, which doesn't happen in the other sports. And I mean, I don't necessarily know why, but you know, where there's that much money in a contract, basketball, baseball, football, there has to be, I mean, we know it from the Balco era that they're, they are trying to figure out how to take advantage of drugs and, and see what they can figure out. And so to help them perform better, which will put more money in their pocket, make their careers longer and, 
I mean, it has to be still around on some level. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm now uncomfortable even speculating about it, but because I just have you know, no idea and there's not a lot of news. It, maybe it's not even happening, but you would assume that with that much money at stake that somebody's willing to do something. I want to actually talk about fact checking mm. because as I was going through your book, in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, how much of this is Matt's best guess at what was going on? Does Matt just have some sort of vendetta here against Nike? You know, and it was really interesting. I think we talked yesterday about fact checking for, I don't know, multiple hours. And that was actually a really fascinating part of the conversation and, and learning more about your specific process and which is a little different than just kind of best practices in investigative journalism. Like we went through a lot of examples where you were like, well, I didn't include this in the book for this reason because I, you know, and, and like really like I was impressed. I have to say if, if anyone who reads this book kind of was doing this, like playing the skeptic to, to the author, right? Like, well, is this really how it went down or is Matt taking liberties here? I left a multiple, a multi-hour conversation yesterday being like, this feels pretty locked down. Like if Matt, cause you explained too, it's like, well, if I start, if, if it turns out this wasn't quite correct or that wasn't quite correct that can start taking down the house right i feel like that's because this is investigative journalism there are so many claims and charges and statements in this book that i thought that was pretty impressive but so with that bit of a lead-in i mean tell us a little bit about your fact-checking process or like what was the kind of line for you where you would put something in this book and where would you not that's that's a huge aspect to any sort of investigative journalism. You know, it kept me awake at night trying to figure out, I don't know, from any anything from ways to corroborate something that I heard that I thought, oh, this is integral to the story. I need to include this. How am I going to verify it? You know, there's the great quote of, if your mom tells you she loves you, check it out. You know, <laughs> like, it, you, you basically try to, at, at base level, you're not really believing anything. And so... But you can't, every instance and every fact has to be checked. I mean, that's what a fact checker does. And the more scandalous you turn in the dial up, the more corroboration you're going to need. Because if you screw it up, the whole thing comes down. I mean, if this book was full of mistakes, you know, Nike could then pick it apart and tear it down and everyone would just disregard it. And so, uh, I mean, as I'm putting the story together, there's ton of, a ton of things that, you know, I'm excited about and revelations and and. So you just start building a case on why you think that's true. And it starts with, is the person truthful? Do you think they're lying to you? And you figure that out, not just from looking across the table at someone or talking to them on the phone and, and, and sort of assessing if their story adds up, but you talk to the other people in the story. Of course, you just start working your way out from the, from the center of what they said happened. The other person there, talk to them. Is that what happened? And, you know, there were instances where an athlete told me things a doctor said, and I talked to the doctor and that doctor said, I would never say that. I absolutely did not say that. And so there were two of those that I left out. I could not corroborate it. And this particular person I had found in other instances had told me things that, you know, that person thought they were true for sure. I could tell he was, he seemed to be coming, not, not trying to mislead me, but 
he was coming from a place where I knew he thought it was true. But whenever I fact check certain things that were sort of scandalous, they didn't add up. And so they didn't make it into the book. And so, I mean, that is the chore really, uh, figure out, um, you know, you, you just wouldn't want to put your career on things you hadn't fact check. And it happens all the time. And so we, we yesterday talked about a little bit about like the industry and, you know, you could get a, um, a book deal from a big publisher. They don't have in-house fact checking. So usually a publisher helps you with a law review. So they have literary lawyers who go through the text with you, but they're not your standard fact checkers. And this is what I, you know, learned about and experienced not only in college, but also in writing magazine stories. And the better the magazine, the further up the food chain you go, you know, to the New Yorker who's at the top of the heap, they have the best fact checkers in the world and they are the most thorough. And Every writer of nonfiction needs that and wants that because we type a number wrong, we mishear something. And so you need fact checking. I mean, it's essential for any, I mean, if it's of consequence at all, we're humans and journalists hear things wrong and they screw things up or they totally misinterpret something. And I've done it and everyone's done it. And if it goes to print, it sucks and you're, you just feel terrible. And so you know, that could be, that could land you in jail in some instances. They didn't expect me to have a fact checker, but you know, the, the, the stakes in the book, you know, I knew from the get go, I'm going to hire my own fact checking. And so I hired the deputy fact checker at the Atlantic who I'd worked with on other work before. And then I realized very quickly, she was overwhelmed. She has a job at the Atlantic. So I had to hire two other fact checkers and one had the fact checker with close closest with is Parker Henry. She was a, you know, the top fact checker at the New Yorker and she had recently left and she was getting ready to go to grad school. And so she saved my life and, and I owe her a ton for the hard work that she put into the book. And so, you know, there's fact checking you can do at your desk, but she called everyone back in the book. She emailed or called to say, let's set up a time to talk. And so just because I needed the facts to be um, straight and nailed down. I had her then literally read the sections. And this is what we were talking about yesterday. You know, in a magazine story, you'll get called back and ask, did you say something like this? They won't usually even read you the direct quote because they don't want you to edit it. So they'll give you sort of a paraphrase of what you said and you'll say yes or no or try to change it. And what you don't want is for people to then change their story or realize this doesn't look good or I want to change, I don't want to, you know, implicate that person. And so that job I left to her and she did a great job. I mean, I started doing it. So I read literally the first three chapters to the gouchers over the phone. Uh, and it was we awkward to read my own work about them, my own words about them. And so from then on, I had Parker call everyone back and she did, you know, a fascinating job. It's a, it's a, it's human work. So it's inherently uh, tough to get 100% correct. And, you know, I, of course, any journalist that's being honest will, well, you know, there's, there are innumerable ways for mistakes to get into the book, but, you know, she could have just called back and verified quotes and left it at that, but I had her read the entire section. So Steve Magnus, she read the entire section, every section he was mentioned in to him. And I read some of him, uh, some to him as well. And, and so you just go through the list. We had a spreadsheet of the, you know, the hundred people that I talked to or that were quoted in the book. And she just went one by one. And it's part of what made the book come out a little bit uh, later than it probably should have. It just it just took forever. And some people were willing to play ball and some people weren't willing to, to at all. And, um, you know, some people only wanted to communicate over email. And, you know, it's a tough job. Some people screamed at her and hung up on her. Uh, Nike executives uh, like to do that. And, you know, it's sort of a never-ending job too because people are calling you back to have you remove things that you'd said 
on the record that I have recorded. And so that's the stuff that kept me up at night. Too. Am I going to remove that portion of an interview that someone's now uncomfortable with, but it's completely true. Um, and so, you know, this is just one of the things where um, my responsibility is to the story and to the truth. And that's at some point, that was my only guiding light. It, of course, inevitably made people that are in the book upset. And uh, that's just one of the difficulties of being a journalist. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, it was tough at times. And I don't want to belabor this point, but, you know, we did the best job that we could. And I'm, you know, I write this in the end of the book. I'm totally comfortable with everything that's in there. And we, you know, we fact checked, uh, you know, from tip to tail. And I'm confident with, with what's in the book. I'm really happy with how it came out. And, you you know, the, the fact checkers I had, they were better than I could have imagined. I mean, they allowed me to go to sleep at night because they were, you know, finding everything from little dates that were wrong to, you know, whatever else that, you know, had somehow gotten in the, in the copy process had gotten changed or you know taken out and replaced somewhere else and now it didn't make sense or whatever so i mean it's just it's a blessing to have good fact checkers you know you pay you you should pay top dollar for it and you can breathe a sigh of relief if you do it right so what has the response from nike been there has been no official response i um you know i talked to them it's quite something how many pages is this book the written text is like 345 i think 345 pages, 126,000 words-ish. Yeah, I think that's right. If someone wrote a 345-page book about me, I'd have a response. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can look at this a bunch of ways. This is, um, you know, an exemplar, an example of Nike's hubris and arrogance that they're too cool for school. They don't care about any... Um, of the news, That's this, the incendiary news that constantly comes out, they rarely comment on it whether it's in the new york times or in my book and that has worked for them quite well and, and that's a thread in my book despite all of these pr nightmares from the sweatshop days of the early 90s through tiger woods or lance armstrong's disgrace you know they base they're pretty close-lipped and they don't com they don't comment on it publicly generally speaking and the stock just keeps going up it, it works for them to sort of be aloof and to too big for it. I mean, and that sounds like a whole lot of criticism, but um, honestly, it works. I can see exactly why they do it. And, you know, I, I was in contact with them really early and I was communicating with PR people. But once they sort of get a drift of what you're doing and it's not just a PR puff piece, um, you know, the same time, I told you this, at the same time, the other day, as the same time my front page New York Times story came out, the very next Runner's World issue I went. And, you know, David Willey, who I don't actually know personally, but he had been on the Nike campus. The, I think the cover of the magazine was him. He had been trained by Nike coaches. He had been running in Nike gear and Nike shoes. And he had been training on the Nike campus. And he the story is about him in Mark Parker's office, the CEO. And he, of course... For, for, not of course, for some reason he asked not one question about the controversy that's surrounding their best and brightest athletes and their coach. And so there's this discongruency here where like Nike has a lot of money and they can they can dip into the media pool and they can pay for you to be trained and to be kitted out in their gear. And it's obvious, but it also works. You know, to remain objective when you're wearing their shoes and you're tip to toe in their gear and they're flying you to Oregon is a is tough to do. And so I, I would maybe argue that it's, it, 
it has swayed and it did this in the Lance Armstrong days. Like it sways the coverage. You know, you're less likely to cover them if you're bros with them. If you're, if they're sending you copious amounts of gear and train and you have a Nike coach, you're less likely to write, you know, a Nike expose. And so, you know, they're smart. They're, they do that uh, for a number of reasons. Obviously the publicity in the magazine is great too, but then it has to curve or sway in some way media coverage. And if you look around, you, you can see, who's been affected by it. And it's disheartening on some level, really. I mean, it just shouldn't work that way. Last question. So Alberto Salazar has an upcoming trial. Talk to us a little bit about exactly what this trial sort of is about and like what is going to be judged here. This is a relitigation of what of his ban, essentially. Um, so he's going to Switzerland. So the last line of defense for any athlete or coach that's been banned, that's taken a WADA ban, which is the world anti-doping agency. You know, he was banned by USADA, which is our local country um, anti-doping agency. But that they they're signatories to the WADA code, and so you know they're they're the big the big boss organization overhanging or, or organization. And so any athlete who's banned, Alberto went through arbitration already in America. You know they they. They notified him of his ban. And what happens is it's supposed to be a secret and you either accept the ban or you you try to go to arbitration and you get two out of the three lawyers who show up to either agree with you and get you off. Yeah, or, um, you know, what happened to him and Dr. Brown, they both fought and they both lost. And so they've been suspended. That's when that happens. And that's when it's supposed to become public. And so the last line of defense is sort of this international court. It's called the Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS. And so it's it's his last chance to get off, uh, to have it totally reversed from USADA, uh, from WADA and USADA. And uh, so that was supposed to happen this month. And I think because of COVID, it's been pushed back to March. But the athletes are all going to have to fly back out uh, to, I mean, maybe they'll change this because of COVID. Maybe they'll do it over the internet. But yeah, it's a full relitigation of everything that's already been done. And so he has a chance to get off completely. I have talked to no one that thinks that that's going to happen. I, Except I'm, me. Uh, you, you. Uh, that's, that's right. I take that back. And I'm sure Alberto thinks he's going to get off. He's a confident guy. And anytime he spoke to these uh, charges, he obviously thinks he's been maligned and this is totally fabricated nonsense and he's going to get off. And so Travis Tigard told me they're going to shoot for a lifetime ban this time around. So to open the case back up, you open yourself up to um, being punished more severely. And Travis thinks just for the environment that he created, this sort of cheating, sort of lying, sort of pushing the gray areas, it's just kind of, it turned into a really um, unhealthy environment for the poor athletes that found themselves involved in it. So Travis is like, we're going to shoot for a lifetime ban this time. And so, yeah, he's got one more chance to get off. And, uh, you know, he very well could, of course. I'd like to hear why you think he he will. I, I know why, because you told me yesterday. But, well, I did. I said... You said, I don't know a single person who thinks he's going to get off. And I said, I think he is. And you're like, what? Why? And I said, have you read your book? And I thought I misheard you. <laughs> and you're like, well, I wrote it. And I was like, well, I just read your book. And I think, I mean, look, obviously zero insider information, but a big takeaway from your book and other books we've read, Nike's got a whole lot of weight and influence. And really, this is the time where we think that weight and influence is going to suddenly not make an appearance. I pray to God 
he is given a lifetime ban. I think he's earned it many times over. But I think, I, I guess I think two things, or I worry about a couple things here. If Nike decides we're still standing by our man, again, I read your book. I am not confident in saying I see how things don't <laughs> go their way, as it were. Now, what I would like to believe is true as a kid who grew up, right, with Nike posters all over his wall, that type of thing, that maybe they have finally seen the light. This would be part of the culture change where they're no longer going to stand by this guy. But really, like we're, we're real confident. Um, you all are co more confident than me. Yeah, that's true. I, I think historically it's been very difficult to overturn what the individual uh, anti-doping agencies per country have, have already adjudicated basically. Um, I think I've only read of one case that's been overturned, but th that needs to be fact-checked. I'm unsure how many, but it's very, very low. Statistically, they just don't do it unless there was some, you know, conspiracy or some huge thing that they overlooked. I just, I don't, I mean, you know, that's historical precedence. What does that mean to this case? I don't know. It could be all new people. Some of them could be in Nike's pocket, like you're sort of... Uh, alluding to. And so, yeah, I mean, that's totally possible. It is a hundred percent possible that he could get off. Um, you know, I don't have a good argument that says he's, you, you know, and one of the things that people love to point out is that none of the athletes were banned. That doesn't mean that none of the athletes were doped. It means that USADA couldn't prove any of the athletes doped or they chose, you know, probably in one of the athletes case, easily provable that he did, uh, ha took an illegal L-carnitine procedure, but they chose because he turned whistleblower not to ban him from sport and tar him with that. And so I I can't see him overturning it, but yeah, I mean, you make a good argument that this is, things like this usually go in, in Nike's way. And, and that 2014 indoor track and field uh, championships is one that I think you brought up where, you know, Alberto goes over and, you know, with his Nike swoosh on his chest and his hat and his Nike tattoo on his left shoulder, starts screaming at the officials until they, um, disqualify the athletes that he wants out of the race. And he does this in a men's race, in one of the men's races and one of the women's races. You know, he gets the, uh, Gabe Grunewald, the national, the new national champion disqualified from the race. So she's no longer going to the Olympics. She's out, she's disqualified. And that moves his athlete, Jordan Hesse, up into a position, uh, you know, obviously into a better position. And then some of the athletes join hands and protest Nike in the, in one of the next races. And so, you know, this is just one of the many stories where Nike's, the Nike overreach is just so obvious and absurd. And it seems so unfair to the athletes. Now, Gabe was reinstated, uh, Bumbalow, the athlete, the male athlete. I don't think he was, I don't think he bothered to fight it because he wasn't in the top three. He wasn't going to the Olympics. He didn't place that high, but you know, that just shows the power of the company and the power of the coach. He was called, you know, the most powerful coach in the world at some point. And so that's just one of the examples where it sort sure seems like it, you know, and he then threatened, uh, Lopez Lamont, a fellow Nike athlete who happened to run for a different coach. And, uh, you know, there were rumors. This is one thing I couldn't corroborate that he took a swing at Jerry Schumacher. Now, Jerry said, I don't remember him swinging at me. So that didn't make the book. I don't actually think Alberto swung at him, but he ran up to him aggressively screaming and swearing at him as though he was going to start a fist fight. And so, you know, this just doesn't happen in our everyday lives as adults 
uh, people, men and women, you know, in the corporate context. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that a Nike coach could get away with and had gotten away with for decades because they're so powerful and they're so in charge of, you know, the governing bodies for one thing, but they're not in charge of the court of arbitration. And as far as I know, they haven't been corrupted by uh, Nike bureaucrats. And so let's hope this is, you know, still a, a true and fair trial. And that's what, absolutely what he deserves. And if he gets off in a fair way, then, then uh, you know, more power to him. Matt Hart, the book is Win at All Costs. And where would you like people to pick up this book? I mean, local bookstore is probably the best one. If, you, if you're going to buy it online, I, I prefer bookshop.org. Bookshop.org. Uh, as opposed to Amazon. We were talking about this. They allow you to pick your local bookstore and they send them cash whenever you buy a book online. They, the bookstore literally does nothing. They just happen to be your favorite. And so you sort of pick your local bookstore. And whenever you buy a book online, they get a check for some portion of what you paid for the book. So it's a way to revive local bookstores. And I, I think it's a neat idea. Hopefully yeah. it takes off. Yeah. So local bookstores or bookshop.org. It's really a hell of an achievement, your book. And I wrote you and I said, I remember I said, it seems like it was really well researched. It's definitely really well written. And then after our seven hour conversation yesterday, I'm willing to take up the seems really well researched to like, I feel very confident in this now. So definitely well researched, definitely well written. It's a remarkable first book. And I can't wait to see what you do with book two, three, four, five, but you're going to be in our lives writing for a while. I get that sense and I'm excited about uh, what's to come. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I appreciate that. I listened to your podcast and I know that you're obviously well-read. And so when someone I can tell, uh, you know, reads books and cares about literature says that to me, it means a lot. So thank you. I appreciate it. Well, hey, thanks for the time. Thanks for the book. And I look forward to the next conversation. Great. Me too. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Matt for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Crested Butte, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again next week. <laughs>